Hello, I'm Sid Rodriguez. Can everyone hear me okay? Uh, I'm going to use the microphone just in case um, anyone has any hearing problems because we have a loop in here. So if you do have a hearing aid or anything, switch it to T. Um, thank you for coming along today. I know it's quite a hot day and uh, being in, stuck inside for your evening is probably not the best idea, but you obviously want to know about uh, universal basic income. So uh, the chair for today is actually Michael Storey from the Adam Smith Institute who wrote uh, a paper about uh, uh, negative income tax, I think. Uh, which was a review of some of the stuff which you're probably finding in your seats. So without further ado, I shall hand you over to Michael Storey. Hey everyone, uh, thanks for coming. Um, <clears throat> good day. So, um, yes, yeah, so as I said, I'm Michael Storey. I wrote a paper for the ASI about uh, income schemes, mostly focused on negative income tax uh, from a kind of libertarian perspective. Um, but there are a number of perspectives on, on these things which we're going to explore tonight with uh, the other two... Uh, panelists. Uh, so to my right is Kitty Stewart, who's Associate Professor of Social Policy at the London School of Economics and Research Associate at the Centre for Analysis of Social Exclusion, and has written extensively about poverty <coughs> and policies which respond to poverty. Uh, Malcolm Torrey, on my left, uh, is the Senior Visiting Fellow at the London School of Economics, uh, author of Money for Everyone, Why We Need a Citizen's Income, 101 Reasons for a Citizen's Income, the Feasibility of a Citizen's Income, and is Director of the Citizen's Income Trust. So he's got a couple of interests to declare on, uh, on tonight's topic. <laughs> so uh, the format of the evening is we're going to explore, firstly, so like, like what a uh, basic income refers to. Um, Malcolm's organization, Citizen's Income Trust, has uh, published this yellow booklet, which you've all got, which is a, um, uh, an exploration of a specific iteration of the idea. And we're going to talk about what that might look like, uh, explore some of the themes around basic income, some of the questions that people have, some of the areas which are a bit up for debate about the idea. Uh, and then we're going to open up to the floor for questions about halfway through the evening. So if you've got any things that, that, uh, that come up that you think might be interesting to learn a bit more about, then uh, make a note. And when we do questions, uh, stick your hand up and, and join in. And we'll try and open up into a bit more of a discussion. Um, so, but to start us off, uh, it's best we go to you, Malcolm, to say, well, what is a citizen's income? Uh, and what I'm interested in is um, what made you decide that basic income was the way forward when it came to welfare as well? What was your, what's the evidence that, that, that most convinced you? Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you to Michael for organising this. Um, and thank you all for coming to discuss what I think is an increasingly important subject. Uh, I've only got a few minutes, which is one of the reasons you've got on your seats the yellow introductory <coughs> booklet. And I'm going to begin by referring to page three of that. It's the first page with some writing on. Um, because that, in, that contains the definition of a citizen's income. It's also called a basic income or a universal basic income. These are the same thing. Um, it's unconditional, it, doesn't, it would vary with age, but not with anything else, so whatever your employment status, whatever your family structure, whatever your earnings, whatever your savings, whatever your wealth, your citizen's income would be exactly the same. Everyone would get exactly the same if they're of the same age. It's automatic, it just keeps on coming. That's, uh, it starts at your birth, it finishes at your death, and that's, that's all that ever has to happen. Um, it's non-withdrawable, what that means is that if your earnings rise, 
your citizen's income is not withdrawn. And with means-tested benefits, at the moment, as you'll know, if your earnings rise, your means-tested benefits go down. It's individual. A large part of our benefit system at the moment is based on the household as the claimant unit. Citizen's income is not. It is individual-based. And as a right of citizenship. Um, you can discuss that concept later on, and I'm, I would welcome that discussion. Um, Basically, everybody legally resident in the UK would receive a citizen's income, subject perhaps to a minimum period of legal residency. So that's the definition. The nearest we've got to it at the moment is child benefit, which goes to every child. Um, and uh, there is a difference because the first child in a family gets a different amount for the second and subsequent children in the family, and so it's not a child citizen's income but it's the nearest thing we've got at the moment. The other nearest thing we've got at the moment, of course, is the National Health Service, which treats absolutely everybody the same. Um, the winter fuel allowance is the same. If you're an elderly person with a pension of any kind, in a state pension of any kind in this country, you get the same um, winter fuel allowance. That is another universal, unconditional, automatic, non-withdrawable individual benefit. Um, so that's what one is. And Michael has asked me to say um, how I got into this. Uh, how I got into this, first of all, is because for two years, from 1976 to 78, yes, I am that old, um, I administered means-tested benefits in Brixton's Supplementary Benefit Office, as it was then called. And so for two years, I sat behind the counter and got to know an awful lot of the people on the other side of the counter and, of course, the members of staff behind me in the office. We were administering what was then called supplementary benefit, um, just a little part of the long history of misnaming of benefits in this country. It usually wasn't supplementary to anything. Um, but it, it was a means-tested benefit. And as people's earnings went up and their benefits went down, um, as people's circumstances changed, they had to come and tell us about them. And actually, we'd rather they didn't, because the administration of that benefit was, it, it was, it was a chaotic matter. Um, one of my jobs each, each month was, as a clerical officer, was to receive a large wadge of paper like that because the regulations of the benefit system, there was no computing then, um, filled a bookcase like that, a shelf on the wall. Um, one of my jobs was to take out the old pages and put in the new pages. Nobody ever read those regulations. Nobody ever asked, well, how should I make this calculation? There wasn't time. And so uh, people's benefits were sort of cobbled together by the staff behind me. And sometimes they were late, sometimes they never came. And I perfectly understood the anger and the frustration of the people in front of me faced with this incredibly bureaucratic system. The worst part of the job was investigating people's intimate relationships. Because means-tested systems are household-based, um, uh, people who were in a couple relationship receive less than two individuals receive in total. And so we had to know what the intimate relationships between claimants were. We hated that part of the job. We had, we had investigators who had to go and find out people's intimate relationships, and I had to try and find them out too. It was degrading for them and for us. And the general experience of that means-tested benefit system for staff and for claimants was the degrading nature of it. They were simply not believed. Um, 
They had to bring evidence for absolutely everything, and there was constant suspicion in the system that uh, they were not telling us the truth. Um, all of them wanted to be rid of the system, and so did all of us. Our favourite benefit was child benefit. It was absolutely wonderful. Um, it was just paid out week after week after week, and for claimants, this was their, found, this was their foundational income security. Um, it was the benefit they valued most if they had children. And so some of us in the office, and particularly me, I think, um, were asking, well, if we can do that for children, provide this solid income foundation for people's uh, budget strategies, why can't we do it for everybody? And when you begin to look at the system that we've got, which is a, a, a muddle of personal tax allowances, necessary benefits, contributionary benefits, and much else, um, it became obvious to, to some of us that actually you could do it. You could turn a great, a large part of that into an unconditional benefit for absolutely everybody. And so since that time, and since I was invited um, uh, just a few years later to a, a Department of Health and Social Security summer school, when the, the idea of unconditional benefits was being seriously discussed in the department, um, uh, I have had a very strong interest in it, which has every now and then been confirmed by experience. I was an industrial chaplain for a while. Um, I was, uh, for 35 years, I've been a vicar in South London parishes. And I was an industrial chaplain for quite a while, and uh, a, 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 just one incident, a carpenter in St Thomas's Hospital uh, came to see me, and he was, he was confused and angry because he'd become a foreman. Um, and so he, he, he got his exams, and he'd taken on new responsibilities, and he found that even though his wages had gone up by a considerable amount, he, had, uh, he found himself in exactly the same position as far as his net income was concerned. And he wondered why. Why? He, because he was on family income supplement, as it then was called, and now working tax credits, um, and his, his pay had gone up, so they'd gone down. In fact, they went down a lot more steeply then than they do now. Um, but he, he, was, he found himself almost not better off at all. And research done not long ago shows that hundreds of thousands of households um, are still uh, facing marginal deduction rates, that's total deduction rates, um, uh, on additional earnings of something like 96%. So if you earn an extra pound, because you're paying tax, national insurance, and meets the benefits are falling, uh, then the, uh, you get 4p out of it, out of every extra pound. There's some research being published by the Centre for Labour and Social Studies, which, which um, <coughs> shows that, and you'll find references in my books. Um, so, uh, and not that long ago, um, I was just saying now, uh, um, I, I've experienced people who are self-employed and tend to be cleaners, um, uh, refusing to accept additional wages. They ask, and I've been responsible for employing cleaners for buildings I've been responsible for. And to hear over and over again the request not to put someone's wages up because it means that their benefits will be thrown into chaos by the office when they tell them. Um, it, it just, it's just one of those little examples that comes again and again 
um, which tells you that the system we're now running is, is, is really not good for people. So, that's, that's the personal stuff. Um, what you've got on the same page as the definition in your booklet is some of the advantages of a citizen's income. Um, it, it, for a vast number of families, it would reduce the poverty and unemployment traps. That is, because, because it's not withdrawn as earnings rise, um, if either the whole of people's means-tested benefits or parts of them were replaced by a universal benefit, an unconditional non-withdrawal benefit like citizens' income, then they would either come off means-tested benefits and their marginal deduction rates, that's the deduction rates on additional earnings, um, would, would come down and so they would get more benefit out of additional wages or they would be receiving far less in means-tested benefits and so be much closer to that position. Uh, the system that we now run is incredibly complex. People say to me it will be very complicated to transition towards a citizen's income system and, and how people's individual or household uh, net incomes would react to the change is, yes, a complicated matter. Not because a citizen's income is complicated, but because the present system is. And I, I, if we've got time, I'll say more about that. How would that affect your carpenter and your uh, How would it affect clients? my carpenter? Um, if my carpenter, because he and his spouse and his children all had citizens' incomes, um, let's, let's take uh, the example that's in a recent research paper that, uh, that um, the Institute of Social and Economic Research has published. Um, each individual adult, say £60, and for the children, um, child benefit rates plus £20 for each one. Um, so an additional earnings for that household, um, sorry, addition, uh, the citizens' incomes would add up to um, a total of 120, 140, 160 pounds a week. Now, it's possible that would take that carpenter off working tax credits and child tax credits. It's possible that it would, because we have figures for the number of households that would be taken off those means-tested benefits. Um, that carpenter would then not find that all of his uh, additional earnings were taken away by the system. And so additional earnings would translate into additional net income. That family would be better off. That carpenter would have more of an incentive to seek new skills, would have more of an incentive to carry on being promoted or to look for a new job with, with higher pay and higher skill levels and so on. If that carpenter still found himself on some means-tested benefits, that carpenter would be on a great deal less of them. And so it wouldn't take much additional learning to get off them. And um, again, we've been able to do some research on some of those figures recently, which we couldn't easily do before. So is your, the key thing for you is, is this... It's one key thing. Uh, well, you, a, a important thing for you is, the, is this um, escape from, from having to kind of account for your life, right? There's well, two, there are two, two separate things. Having to account for your life is one issue. Mm. Um, and being in a bureaucratic system that constantly interferes with your privacy. Um, another is, is the way in which our current system um, destroys the value of your additional earnings, whereas a system based on citizens' income would not do so or would not do so to the same extent. 
Um, those are two very different issues, mm. and both, both of them um, mean that a citizen's income would be uh, a considerable advantage over the present system that we're running. Um, another major uh, 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 advantage is, is the one I mentioned earlier about financial foundations. Um, for many families, the, the wages gyrate rapidly, week to week. And, and um, research that John Hills at the LSE has published, Good Times, Bad Times, I don't know how many have read his, his book, brilliant book, um, shows just how wages are gyrating now for so many families, um, often from week to week, because of the, the way in which our employment market is changing. Um, and quite often, child benefit is the only solid foundation there is. And so <clears throat> if you could increase that platform, increase the level of that platform, you would provide households with a far deeper sense of security, um, thus giving them more, more of an incentive to take employment and income risks. Um, we're going to need people to have flexible employment arrangements. We're going to need people to get into self-employment, to start businesses and so on. This is really difficult uh, for people with too little of a, too small of a financial foundation. A citizen's income will provide that foundation. And one of the really interesting results from a pilot study in Namibia, now I know Namibia is not here, um, and there are big differences between the two, but uh, a pilot study in Namibia showed um, that even a very small citizen's income uh, resulted in a substantial increase in own account economic activity, especially amongst the lowest earners, because they had, for the first time, a foundation on which to build. So that's another of the major advantages. Another of the major advantages is social... Especially for time, Malcolm, we're... You, you are, yes. Uh, yeah. Social cohesion. Uh, there's not a lot that, that binds us together at the moment, and the recent referendum has proved that. that I'm well, we'll come on to Brexit in a I minute. Don't, I don't want really yeah. to discuss that at the moment. However... It has provided evidence of the fractured nature of our society. Um, and the more we can put together to, to bind us together, the better we're going to be in the future. Um, there's very little in our benefit system and in our tax system that hold us together as a society. Child benefit is one of those things. Um, uh, a citizen's income would, would have a considerable effect in that direction. So you... So we, we've heard uh, a summary of citizens' income that offers freedom from uh, bureaucratic uh, imposition, uh, financial security, and social cohesion. Uh, and, and it would be administratively so, simple. And it would. And do you want to hear about feasibility, or do that later? We'll move on to that later. Right. But first, I want to hear from Kitty about why you prefer social disharmony, discord. <laughs> you love bureaucracy. And, uh, and you want nobody to have any freedom at all, okay. least of all financial. Right. I'm going to try to stand up. Yes, yes, okay. do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's all right. It'll, it'll, it'll Give me catch a you, wave if you. Can you hear me at the back? Okay, so I think, and contrary to what you've just said, Michael, I like, I like all of those three ideas. Um, and I think that citizens' income is an absolutely brilliant idea um, for all the reasons that Malcolm has laid out. I think it's a fantastic idea until you read the small print and you look at the detail and you look at the numbers. So once you get onto those practicalities, I think it becomes a lot less appealing. The economist, American economist Larry Summers said, it's one of those ideas that the longer you look at it, the less enthusiastic you become. And I think that sums up um, my view. Um, 
So sweeping away means testing conditionality, getting rid of administrative costs, complexity, getting rid of the intrusive and stigmatizing means tests, the stigmatization of means tests, um, and improving working incentives. All of those are really good things that it might be able to do. But there's a basic problem here, and that is that people's lives are very complicated. People have very different levels of needs. And that means that our social security system has to also be very complicated and respond to those different uh, levels of need. So what that would mean for a universal basic income is basically it would either have to make sure that absolutely everybody had the level of support so that, the, that the person in the country with the most needs has. So we offer the same level of support to everybody to make sure that that most disadvantaged person isn't losing out. And that is just simply unfeasible when we look at the cost of it. Um, or we have to accept that we will have large increases in poverty. And to me, that is um, the unacceptable face of basic income when we look at it in practice. Um, there is an alternative, which is a sort of modified universal basic income, where we do keep many of our... We have a, um, a basic income scheme, but we keep many of our means-tested benefits as well to make sure that we're also meeting the needs of, um, of the most disadvantaged people with the highest needs, with more children, with disability, so on. Um, but the problem with that is that that retains many of the problems that Malcolm's been talking about to do with um, the complicated and sometimes stigmatising means tests. So let me put a few, give you a few numbers so that you can see what I'm talking about. There's a recent report for Compass by Howard Reed and Stuart Lansley, and they've done really good and careful simulations of different types of universal basic income schemes for this country. Um, so let's consider both a full scheme which would get rid of the means-tested benefits, and the modified kind of halfway house one. Now, when we look at their full schemes, all of them lead to very sharp increases in relative poverty, and particularly in child poverty. So that is for the reasons that I've said. Well, some, there are some households currently, so for example, a lone parent working part-time uh, with two or three children, that, that person currently receives very generous level of support through the tax credit system, which enables them to work part-time and to, to keep their family out of poverty. Um, to offer that level of support to everybody is simply not possible. So the Compass calculations come up with a scheme which gives pensioners £151 a week, other adults £73, so the same level as our, our current uh, unemployment benefits, and children £44. And they say that that would cost £43 billion, um, even up, that's on top of or putting tax rates up by quite a lot, so having a 30% basic rate of tax and a 50% higher rate and top rate. Um, so that, that, all of that extra cost and the £43 billion that has to be found from somewhere would increase child poverty by 10 percentage points. So as someone who's really concerned about child poverty and works on the consequences of child poverty and the, the impact that that has on children's lives, I just think, for me, that's, you know, I'm out of that scheme. I just don't see why we would spend that much money on a system which increased child poverty to that extent. Um, now, we could abolish the personal allowance as well as putting tax rates up, and that would mean that we actually save money by doing this. We'd have a net saving of £53 billion, but we'd still have child poverty going up by eight percentage points. And by the way, and this is true of this scheme, and it's also true of Malcolm's schemes, there's one thing that all of these schemes sort of put on the side because it is just too difficult for them to deal with, and that is housing benefit and council tax benefit. So those are highly means-tested benefits, and in fact they are responsible for a lot of the work disincentives in the current system, 
And because it's just too messy to introduce them to these sort of simulations, um, we, we, those are always excluded. So we're still keeping, even with all of this extra cost and these increases in poverty rates, we've still got a big element of means testing in the system as it is. Anyway, Reid and Lansley, who've done this report, themselves conclude from these increases in poverty rates that a full universal basic income scheme is just not feasible um, and not desirable. So then they look at some modified schemes that keep some elements of means testing. Um, and so some of these look a lot more plausible to me than the full schemes do. So there's a modified scheme that would give a flat rate payment of £71 for all adults, except pensioners who get £51. £59 for children, and that system reduces child poverty by between 7 and 9 percentage points. So to me, that catches my attention, and I think, okay, so maybe this could be something that would be workable. But there are two hitches. The first one is, as I've said, we're actually leaving in place much of the current means-tested systems. So as well as housing benefit and council tax support, we would have the pension credit means-testing for pensioners, and we would have the child tax credit current system, which is... Uh, responsible for some of the things that Malcolm was talking about, about um, payments having to be adjusted as wages go up. We would reduce the number of people who are subject to means testing, but only by about one-fifth. So that doesn't seem very much. Of course, as Malcolm said, there would be lots of people who are a bit less reliant on means testing. Uh, but means testing would still be an important part of the system. The second problem is that this is still really, really expensive. Um, so to pay for it, what Reed and Lansley suggest is that we abolish the personal tax allowance, um, we put the, all the tax rates up, so the basic rate would be 25p, 45p for the additional rate, uh, uh, the higher rate and 50p for the additional rate, um, and even having done all that we need to find £8 billion, which they have various suggestions for wealth taxes to do that. So £8 billion sounds doable. But the money that they've raised by putting the tax rates up like that and by getting rid of the personal tax allowance, all that money comes to £161 billion. So the total cost here is £169 billion of this scheme. Now, if I had £169 billion, there are many, many things I could do with it. So just to put that in context, we currently spend about £88 billion on education in total in this country. So it's double what we spend on education. We spend £120 billion on the health service. So we could increase the amount in going into the health service. We could more than uh, double that. Uh, no, we couldn't. But we could... We could... Uh, uh, we, yes, we could, actually. So we could either treble what we spend on education or we could double, more, and more than double, what we spend on health. We spend £190 billion on our social security system. So we'd be nearly doubling what we spend on social security. Um, all of that, we, in, we reduce child poverty by eight percentage points, so that's good, but I think that is an, uh, a too expensive way of doing it. So what I would do if I was going to raise all that money, so if we're going to persuade people collectively that they should pool more of their resources and spend more as taxation, um, which I think is a very good thing and I think we certainly should do that, I think there are different ways that we could transform our society using those Funds. So I would certainly invest in universal benefits for children. I think child benefit, I completely agree, is a real cornerstone uh, for families. I would make it more generous. And actually, I would restore its universality because it is no longer universal. It's been taken away from uh, people earning more than £60,000. Um, and that happened very quietly, actually. I think that all the basic income people should have made a big fuss about that because I agree that that is one form of basic income that I think is much more... Um, more uh, uh, makes sense to many more people.
Um, I, would, I think there's no way around keeping the tax credit system, the child tax credit system, making it back into the progressive universalist system that it was, and I think there are ways around, and, and uh, the Labour government was getting around some of these ways of concerns about clawing back money um, quickly by having dis disregards and so on, so there are ways you can deal with some of that. Um, I'd make um, unemployment benefit more generous, certainly a little bit, starting with contributory <coughs> unemployment benefit, but by not having to pay a weekly, fairly small amount of money to every adult in the country, I would have enormous resources to invest in short start children's centres, in the health service, in education, in mental health services, in housing, uh, to try and reduce some of that, the, the, the housing benefit bills by providing a higher supply of housing. So it seems to me that that is the way to deal with a fractured society. I think our public services are currently under a massive pressure. Some of them are being run into the ground. And I think we'd do much better to spend uh, this money on those things and not on a universal um, basic income. Just one last point, which is a slightly different one that Malcolm hasn't made, but sometimes people argue in favour of basic income for a rather different reason, which is that we're moving to a, a world in which work is very unstable, and also there's less work. There's so many jobs are being replaced, especially low-skilled jobs by um, robotisation, uh, they're being me mechanised and there, aren't, there isn't so much call for, for many people to work. So some people have argued that this is a way, a basic income is actually a way of ensuring that we capture some of, the, some of the gains from growth and make sure we spread it to everybody and it doesn't all get taken away by, by capital and by the very rich, that some of it gets redistributed to people. Um, so that's, to me, I really, I really don't like that idea. That is not, to me, an idea of a great democratic and egalitarian uh, society which gives everybody freedom. I think it's a bit of a frightening dystopia. I don't really want to live in a society in which we um, let some people live on an unconditional £70 a week so that we don't need to feel guilty that there isn't, aren't decent jobs out there. I think what we need is not a basic income, but good and decent jobs. People want to work and they want to make a contribution and they want to be rewarded for it. Um, so I think that that is something we should be concentrating on much more and I worry that the focus of the left now on a basic income is distracting us from the real challenge which is trying to create good jobs um, for, for people who don't have access to them anymore. So I've been thinking a lot recently, as I'm sure we all have, about some of the areas in this country that voted Brexit most heavily. And those are, many of those are de-industrialised towns where there is no work and people are fed up and people have certainly felt very deeply the increased stigmatisation and conditionality in the benefit system which they are forced to rely on. Um, but it's my view that those, what those societies need is not a, an unconditional basic income. They need better jobs. And I think that that is what the left should be focusing on, and that's what radical thinkers should be um, thinking about. That's it. Oh, there we go. Uh, forthright, forthright defence of, uh, <laughs> of the status quo. Well, no, no, not quite. Not quite the status quo. Um, no, so that's interesting. So on that job uh, point there, Malcolm, right, because this is a pretty, uh, that is a pretty common argument, right, that you've got this, this process of globalisation, which is... Uh, leaving behind a lot of lower skilled workers and in many many countries they that group forms the the kind of core of um, these politically protesting movements right so that's the case in the UK with Brexit it's the case in the US with Trump and some of those other um, 
political kind of like anti-elitist protest movements that are a result of those changes that have harmed that group. So I'm actually somewhat sympathetic to that, to your dystopia, actually, because, yeah, I, because I think, well, if you're going to be left behind, you should at least get compensated, and you know, what better way than just some cash? So I'm sort of sympathetic to that view, but, um, but I understand why, uh, as, a, as a least worst option, right, that if the jobs aren't coming back, at least you, get, at least you can eat, right? Um, but, uh, but I understand your objection to it. But on that jobs point, Malcolm, I mean, how, how would you respond to that, that... that um, uh, that you know that this is a, a kind of a second best solution to that problem. There, there is more than one part to that response. Um, first of all, we don't know what the employment market is going to look like in the future. Anybody who predicted, who, who, who confidently predicts what it's going to be like, I don't know how they possibly can. Um, every previous automation, every previous round of computerization every previous technological change um, has destroyed jobs and created jobs and uh, uh, in various different proportions. And um, we actually don't know what's going to happen to the employment market in the future. We don't know, and we just don't know. Um, the point that I would make to follow that is that because we don't know, we need a tax and benefit system that would cope with any possible future context. Our present system is, is fashioned around the kind of employment market and household structure that William Beveridge knew. And in its, its essence, it hasn't changed since then. We are now a very long way from that kind of employment market and household structure. Um, there are no norms anymore the way that there were. And so if you're going to have a system that, that, that both protects people's ability to consume and protects their dignity and provides them with a springboard from which they can create their own businesses and self-employment, then a radically simple system is really the only answer. And um, the fact that we don't know what's going to happen in the future is one of the good arguments for citizens' income. It's certainly not an argument for keeping what we've got. Uh, on the, in the relation to, to good jobs for communities, I absolutely agree. Um, there is nothing better for somebody's self-esteem than a good job through which they can contribute to society. Um, and the, the, the evidence on the advantages of good jobs to people's mental health and social integration and everything else, um, it, 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 the, the evidence is, is incontrovertible. Um, the question is, how do you achieve that kind of, um, I won't say full employment because that has particular connotations and we're not going to get back to that particular kind of world, but how do we get to a position where people can obtain the employment that they want and industry, commerce and the public sector are going to be able to obtain the work that they need. Um, uh, the present system is, is highly rigid in the way it treats people's working hours and in the way in which people are, are pushed into, a, uh, into constant dilemmas over whether to tell benefits uh, administrators that they've got an extra little job on a Saturday morning. Um, the world we're, going, we're in is full of flexibility now and that's not going to change. Um, and we need a system that will cope with that. The only system that will cope with that is so you don't actually have to report anything to anybody. 
Um, uh, of course we need to collect tax and we're going to have to continue to find ways to collect tax and we can do that. But in terms of people's benefits, we need to take people out of that demoralising and criminalising trap um, of, of our current means best tested system. A citizen's income would provide people with the, the, the springboard um, uh, on which they could create their own jobs, on which they could more easily take on a variety of different jobs all at the same time. Um, uh, when I was chaplain of the O2, um, which I was for several years, it was a wonderful experience, as you can probably imagine. Um, a vast number of people who work in the O2. How many of you have been to the O2? Yeah, good. I'm glad to hear it. Wonderful arena. Um, a vast number of people who work there are on zero-hour contracts. Many of them want them. Um, and uh, the, what was wrong with some of the debate before the previous, the last general election um, was the idea that, that zero-hour contracts are in essence wrong. They are not. Um, there are exploitative ones and there are non-exploitative ones and non-exploitative ones that allow people to work for other employers, that enable people to say no to shifts at short notice and so on. Um, these were valued by people who work in the O2. Um, and what they wanted was those to continue because they fitted round their complex lives. And uh, what we need is a benefit system and a tax system that will cope with all of that into the future. There's no point in pretending that would happen. Now, these, are, these were good jobs. Now, uh, some people would say a zero-hour contract is not a good job. Well, for some people, actually, it is, if the job is a good one. And we need to provide the, the infrastructure, the financial infrastructure, that will enable people to live well on a, on a very diverse system of employment. Um, what we don't know is what impact a citizen's income would have on the employment market. And I have to say that, we actually don't know because we've never done one. Um, there are theories, and one theory is that if you give everyone a citizen's income, uh, they, will be, they will more easily be able to say no to bad jobs, which means that jobs will improve. That's a theory. Um, it's yet to be tested, and I'd like to see it tested. Another theory is, another hypothesis, is that if you give people um, a citizen's income, they will be less likely to work. Now, there is evidence against that hypothesis, and it's provided by the negative income tax experiments in Canada and the United States, and I, I can give details afterwards if anybody wants those. Um, the, the evidence is complex, but suggests that um, employment activity in general does not go down if you provide people with, um, with a different income structure. Uh, I think, does that sort of answer the It does. Questions? One of the things I was curious about, which you both touched on, is um, uh, this issue about of meaning, I suppose, right? That like a good job is, is meaningful, um, but if you have an income floor, that also allows you to find meaning perhaps outside of your, of your job. Um, and so you, so there's, there's sort of two routes to agape, isn't it? I mean, I can't remember, I forgot the week. But you know what I mean, right? Meaningful happiness. So, um, uh, uh, but I wonder whether this, um, this sort of agglomeration effect that concentrates the returns from growth uh, in some regions of the country uh, is also true of these, uh, of social relationships, right? And so it might be a little bit more difficult to, to, in the same way that it's difficult to get an industry going in a deindustrialized town, it might be difficult to get a, social, a civil society going in a, uh, in a socially gutted town, 
because for the, for the same way that uh, the most highly skilled workers have moved on, you might find that the most highly socially skilled people have also moved on. You don't have that agglomeration effect as strongly. And so I, my own view is quite similar to that prior to uh, some recent um, stuff I've been reading about, about some of those effects and about how people tend to, this, this clustering effect, this agglomeration of, of highly skilled people, which mirrors some of those yeah, uh, I, I, employment I'm, I'm the first to say that the citizens' income will not solve all the problems. No, no, <laughs> I'm very sorry to have to disabuse anybody if they think that a citizen's income is the answer to everything. Of course it isn't. Um, it will not solve the housing costs problem. The housing costs problem is a massive problem, um, and it needs to be solved, but the ben current benefit system doesn't solve it, and the citizens' income wouldn't solve it. So it, 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 that is an issue which, to some extent, we can, and rightly can, leave to one side, needs solving. Um, uh, but can I just respond to that? I think the problem, to me, is that if, if it wasn't going to cost anything, great. But by spending this much money on it, we are restrict. We're definitely restricting our um, ability to I, do other things. Yeah, I wonder if I can come to that point because I haven't responded to it, and I should. Um, yes. The, the cost issue. Um, it. Uh, if you use a national accounts process for working out the cost of a citizen's income, it looks as if it costs a vast amount of money. Um, however. It actually doesn't, and the reason it doesn't is this, because if I, most of you will have a personal tax allowance, okay? Um, if I were to take that away from you, and instead, I mean, that tax allowance is worth money to you, and if I were to take it away from you and instead give you a citizen's income that was of exactly the same value, your net income each week will be exactly the same. It wouldn't change. Does everybody get that point? Um, if you're on means-tested benefits, and instead of being on means-tested benefits, you had a universal benefit, or some of that money was given to you as an unconditional benefit and some as means-tested benefits, um, you could be in the same position as far as you're uh, on day one of the implementation of a citizen's income. Um, you'd be in the same net income position. That is, you don't get any extra money. There is no extra money in the pot. Um, and so a citizen's income can, in, in one way, be seen as simply a rearrangement of the benefits and tax system that we've got. Um, it's not costing a lot of extra money, neither is it providing a lot of extra money, it's doing things differently. And it's the differently that would make an ultimate difference to people's behaviour and to people's financial security. So are you saying that if the same amount of money is paid unconditionally, let's keep it revenue neutral, that, that alone is worth it because of the reduction in conditionality. Of course that, it is. Yeah. Of course it is. Because on day two, when your wages go up, your citizen's income won't go down. Whereas if you were still on, on just on means-tested benefits, the whole lot would go down. That, that, um, it's, it's not that the citizen's income costs a lot of extra money which you could then take out of the system and use for, say, the health service or education. Um, what we've been trying to achieve in some of the illustrative schemes, I, I emphasise the word illustrative. None of this is a policy. This is an illustrative scheme. You, you, if you look at scheme B here, for instance, um, it keeps in place the means-tested benefits, um, and it, it costs almost nothing to do because it's, uh, it's a rearrangement. And if you turn to page 8, 
Is it page eight? Yeah, page eight. Um, no, it's not page eight. It's page 10. If you turn to page 10, you'll find that at the bottom of that table there, the vast majority of households have seen almost no change in their, in their net income. Which scheme are we looking at? B at the moment. I no longer talk about scheme A. I was asked to put it in my booklet. Um, I didn't wish to because it produces far too many um, uh, net income losses on, for low-income families. I think it's a non-starter. Um, scheme B, which leaves in place means-tested benefits, it certainly is a starter um, because it's feasible in, in that sense. That is, it doesn't impose losses on low-income households at the point of implementation. Um, it also re requires a, a, an income tax rate increase of only 3%. And I, uh, Howard Reed and myself have been discussing with each other our different micro-simulation methods. He uses his own construction. Um, and I use Euromod, which is the um, now, I suspect, rather more fragile uh, European Union-funded system at the Institute for Social and Economic Research. We, some of us are really rather worried, to be honest. I mustn't talk about Brexit, must I? Um, it's one of the research tools that we might lose. This is uh, be terrible news for some of us who use it. Um, but Euromod, which is um, a micro-simulation tool funded by the European Union and developed around Europe by different national teams, um, provides slightly different results from Howard Reed's own micro-simulation programme. And, and we, we are still discussing with each other exactly what's going on, but they're not big differences. Um, and the, the micro-simulation work that we've done, and I've got, if anybody's interested in, in an updated piece of research that's only recently come out, I've got a couple of copies here to talk to me afterwards. Um, we've also been able to do some really <coughs> useful work on the statistics for Scheme B, which you'll see in there. Um, it reduces child poverty by about a third at no net cost. And some of us think this is a quite remarkable achievement. Um, honestly, I, here's the figures. I want to let Kitty respond. Kitty. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm interested to see those figures. I just, it, this, this Scheme B Fine, but a couple of things. You're leaving all the means testing in place. Yes. So we now know how many. A, you know. Well, we now know how many people will come off it because we've been able to do that piece of work as well. And how many people is that? Um, take take some examples. Um, it's not all good news, I have to say, but take some examples. Um, the best news is that in work means tested benefits, work working tax credits and child tax credits. Um, the reduction in total cost is 27%. The reduction in the average value of the claim is 3%. But if you look at, at um, uh, where are we? Out-of-work benefits, that's income support, income-related job seekers allowance, income-related employment support allowance, the reduction in total cost of those means-tested benefits is 70% with Scheme B which is a substantial achievement. So we're talking about the three, reduction, a three the redu penny... Uh, a reduction in average, in average value of claim is 64%. So you're talking about 3% on income tax to remove how many people from conditionality altogether? The... What's that? Because that's... Two, that's, that's, that's over 2% of the population. Um, it looks... 
who don't have to suffer it. So is there... No, is no, there that's, a, that's uh, not. It's 5%, 5% of... Sorry, a quarter of claimants for in-work benefits. And um, what's that? Two out of 16. It's about... 12%. Yeah, about 12% um, for out-of-work benefits. So is there a way then, Kitty, to reduce this conditionality, which is psychologically costly, right? What, what, is there another way to do it, or, or, is, or is your view, well, it's possible, but it's very expensive, so we'll lump it? Um, you mean another way other than... Yeah, of, yeah is there a way to, make, to, to keep means testing and conditionality, but uh, make it less psychologically think, injurious? Yeah. Is that, well, is that I think a, we could... I think um, more generous child benefit is very important, so I think Malcolm and I completely agree on that. Um, and that would make a big difference to families. So on that aspect of basic income, yeah, I'm, I'm completely signed up. Um, I think a stronger social insurance base to our unemployment benefit system. So at the moment you get, you could have worked 20 years and many people who, it's not true of everyone, it's certainly not true of youth unemployed, many, many people who become unemployed have worked for many years and they paid their contributions and they are then told, right, you get six months at 70 pounds a week. Um, and then you need to go through this stigmatising means tested process. I think if we had a more generous and longer lasting uh, contributory system, that take, gets rid of a lot of the means tested uh, problems. I, I think I would have agreed with you if, if our employment market had remained the same kind of stable market full of full-time jobs that it's always been. Um, I, we, we too, when I was working in the benefits office in Brixton, we liked contributory benefits because they just came when people um, had this particular contingency. They became unemployed or they became sick or they retired, whatever it is, the, the contributory benefits just came. But even during that period, from 1976 to 1978, we were seeing a change occurring where far fewer people had um, sufficient contributions to provide them with um, with national insurance benefits, and so we're straight on to the, the means tested benefits, or their national insurance contributions are so, benefits are so small that they were on them anyway. Um, uh, whether, whether, I know Frank Field, who I've talked to about these things, would be very pleased to see an enhanced national insurance system. It's what he goes on about quite often. Um, and if we had the kind of employment market which would support that, then I could agree with him. But we haven't, and we're just probably not going to have again. Um, we're going to be seeing a more, a more chaotic and more diverse um, employment market in the future, and we need a system that will cope with it. And I, I, I can't see how national insurance can now. Well, at that point, um, it would be good to open it up a bit. So Sid has got a microphone uh, to go around. So uh, if you want to fire up your questions, uh, and uh, yeah, well, as, uh, you, you, you're taller, so you can see you far away. Well, um, yeah, start the front and work back. Uh, am I loud enough? Yes, yes. Thank okay. you. Um, my name's Ted. Uh, thank you for the presentations. Uh, I want to say two things, if I might. They're half-hearted questions, but mostly statements. Um, <laughs> Careful. <laughs> yeah. Firstly, Kitty, I, I, I want to challenge you that you brought left-right politics into what you said, and I don't regard this point as left-right politics, and you lost my enthusiasm when you did that. Okay. Um, 
The other point I want to make is that to me, the proposition is all around trust. Uh, I don't trust civil servants if they give me an answer and they won't show me the data as to how they calculated the numbers like they did with my state pension, then I just don't believe that it's accurate. And on that basis, I think society would run so much better with the citizens' advice project. So the idea is it would be a transparent income. That there would be total transparency. Yes. You know what you're getting. Everyone's clear on what they're getting. And to my mind, that is an enormous statement. And that's a benefit. Even yeah. if the amount of money stays the same, the Correct. transparency is an advantage. Yeah. Kitty, can you respond to the left-right? Yes, right I, I, yes. I, I apologise. I, it's, I, I mean, it's an actually a very interesting idea, because, particularly because it appeals to people from across the spectrum. And actually, it doesn't. Your views on basic income, you can't predict. Actually, as I suppose many, many issues now, but uh, it's an issue that you can't predict by knowing where someone would place themselves. Um, I suppose that came because I've been, I've been interested recently uh, that the Labour Party is picking this up. Um, the Green Party obviously has been pushing it very strongly. And although there's also, at the other end, we've had the Adam Smith Institute for different reasons um, being keen on it. But I suppose I've been, I've heard recently from lots of people on the left talking about it. So I suppose I was just responding to that and saying, I think for people on the left, I don't think it's, I don't think it is the right way to to address the issues, but apologies. <laughs> Thank you. It's a huge idea, indeed. And um, uh, yes, uh, and it will have lots of what you call uh, uh, um, counter arguments, arguments and counter arguments. I think we need to define the terms of the de debate. I think we need to know what's more, how we prioritize our uh, arguments. And I think uh, in that direction, it is. I think the first thing should be to talk of its desirability. Uh, what are its desirabilities? And uh, as far as the affordability is concerned, well, we can always work around that problem of economics. Uh, that is not beyond the, the what we call the, uh, the ingenuity of economics uh, to work around a, a problem. Uh, first thing is that we need to work out whether we think it is desirable. And on that one, of course, Malcolm is, uh, is of course, convinced. I'd like you to tell me whether it is a desirable scheme in terms of social, political, psychological, um, social cohesion. In those terms, is it desirable? Thank you. So if it was free, would you still, you know, would you still want to do it? If it was free, I think it's, yeah, to me it's about the numbers. The numbers don't, if it was free, of course, I think it's a fantastic idea and we could make it generous enough that it was, would actually be meaningful. I think that, that all the schemes end up, if, uh, Malcolm's right in a sense about this accounting that you're just sort of rearranging money and you're taking the personal tax allowance and kind of giving it back. But the fact is, you are taking away the personal tax. You are taking away the personal tax allowance and asking people to pay higher rates of tax. And if you're going to do that, you've got you have got a choice about how you spend that money. And just giving it back is one way of doing it. Spending it on the health service, which is desperately in need of funds, and spending it on other things that we know really need the money, is you have got choices about how you spend the money. You have got choices, but if you're not going to deplete people's net incomes, then you haven't got much choice. And one of the benefit, one of the advantages of something like Scheme B, which we've now developed further, um, is that it ensures that losses at the point of implementation are almost non-existent and we've got I think we've got to ensure that people's living standards are low enough already and particularly people in the lowest income decile we've got to ensure that that they don't actually lose anything um, uh, maybe I should could respond briefly to the point um, if you're interested in those issues then desirability is discussed in money for everyone 
Um, and that came out in 2013. That's basically about desirability. And there's a short version called 101 Reasons for Citizens' Income, also published by Policy Press. Just come out this week, though they still haven't managed to get the electronic book right, so you, you, you'll, and I'm afraid this is rather expensive, so I'm not giving it to anybody. Um, <laughs> it's the feasibility of citizens' income, and it's, it, it discusses a variety of different kinds of feasibility, like the ones you mentioned, psychological, behavioural, different kinds of financial feasibility. Can we afford it? Does it affect people's net incomes too much? Um, and the political process feasibility, political feasibility, administrative feasibility, there are chapters on each one. Um, this is the first book that, that tackles that subject in a systematic fashion. I hope it will be useful because it is designed to answer the kinds of questions that we are discussing, quite rightly discussing, this evening. Um, we need to do both, desirability and feasibility. And that, that, yeah. Question right further back then, we'll come down to the front. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was wondering if anyone in the sort of uh, in your position was ready to implement a pilot study because having read the results of the Namibian and the Indian pilot studies, uh, there seemed to be a whole load of economic savings that were incredibly difficult to measure. Um, and when you brought about uh, the point that it would be terribly expensive. But it seems to suggest, the pilots seem to suggest that there would be these savings with things like a, cr a reduction in crime, uh, higher health, and which would just place less pressure on the NHS, and therefore there's this extra, there is this extra money which is available to us. Um, there's a sort of social benefit, uh, and, and, and that would be reflected in lower costs for other services. Yeah, which seems to be, to, from my opinion, seems to be the main attraction to citizens' income, but can only really be measured if we have a proper pilot study. And I mean, I understand there is one in Finland at the yeah, moment, but I was wondering if anyone in the UK was in this position to Well, the, the Finnish thing is one. a bit complicated, right, because it's, it's not, they've not actually said what they're going to do yet formally. They're discussing trying lots of different ideas. Um, so it's, it's at a fairly early stage. Um, the stuff with Namibia and India is very interesting. So in both cases, they've got developing countries with, like, diff you know, th there's a question about whether that's generalisable to the UK. Yeah. Um, because, for example, in India, like, civil service corruption is like, incredible, like, eye-watering if you've, like, li yeah, lived in the West. It's, right. So, uh, yeah, so Guy Standing, who was running that thing in India, uh, they had, like, paid thugs come to try and burn down their office and stuff by people that were benefiting from criminal activities in the previous schemes. So if, if you are if you experience these that massive costs from corruption and things like that, then it's kind of a no-brainer. But Can yeah, I add, sorry, some, can I add something to that as well, which is yeah. that a, a big difference there is that you're going from not giving anybody any benefits to then offering everybody a benefit. So suddenly people have got an income. Um, Whereas in, what but they did, they did have benefit schemes in place in India. Sure, the Indian one, they, they were replacing Indian one. Um, uh, subsidised goods and the... Guaranteed labour. Yeah, but presumably well. they're reaching a lot of people that they weren't reaching before with the benefit. The, the because we know we have a lot of evidence that money really makes a difference to people, and people yeah. do need income, and it makes a, so having more generous benefits certainly. The group, um, but their benefits but were quite generous, but it seemed to be that they weren't. It seemed to be in management of them, and they couldn't get them to the right people. The wrong people right. were receiving them. Was the main issue it seemed with well, those benefits? One of the important things that happened in India was that women and people with disabilities 
suddenly found themselves with a small income, which, uh, which given the household, usual household structure in, in India, they weren't experiencing before because the, the subsidised food, the guaranteed labour, that kind of stuff tended to end up with the men. So you've, you actually you, you improve the position of women substantially by giving a cash benefit um, that was of no more value than the previous system. So actually it wasn't costing anything. And, one, and the, the Indian pilot project, I think, is really interesting. Namibia, absolutely true. Um, the, they were, in one sense, started from nothing. So Namibia already had um, something like a universal pension. So they, they weren't starting completely from scratch um, with, with, with a benefit system. But it did have substantial benefits in terms of uh, nutrition, health, um, school performance and attendance and um, local democracy, because the, the, the citizens' income inspired democratic processes to occur in the pilot villages. Um, I can say something about pilot projects elsewhere. Um, quite right, uh, Finland don't know what they're doing. Um, I mean, seriously, they don't know what they're doing yet. Um, and there's been a huge amount of misinformation about it. And um, it's very important to recognise they haven't actually done anything yet. And they still don't know what they're going to do. And the same is true of Utrecht, where there's been much talk. And I, I know people are involved. And every possible pilot project scheme they look at falls apart in their hands because putting on a genuine citizens' income pilot project in a developed country is really difficult. And we've done some of our own work, and I'm doing some now with the help of a, a French um, master's degree um, student placement. Um, who's, who's doing a, a, a survey in East London as to what might be possible in terms of a pilot project. And, and every time you look at an option, you find it all falls to bits. Because a, a, a genuine citizen's income is permanent. That is, it's not just for a year or two. It's unconditional. It's, it's population-wide, and that really is important, that it's not just for people who are unemployed, it's not just for people who are this, it's not just for people who are that. And this is, I think, what we're going to end up with in places like Finland. They're going to choose pockets of people whom they can easily identify, and then they'll have to ask themselves the question, if we just go for unemployed people, what happens when they become employed? Do we then take it away? Then it's not a citizen's income. And so you, you, the whole thing then drops to bits. Um, the major problem that we have discovered in this country, and it's, I don't think it just applies to this country, is the, your personal tax allowance and um, your means-tested benefits, your national insurance benefits, everything <coughs> that, that is part of our tax benefit system um, is enshrined in primary legislation. If we were going to hold a pilot project, we would require primary legislation to do it. And no government is going to give time to that. Because if you're going to give time to that, then you are going to implement a citizen's income scheme. And um, one of the reasons that we've seen the, uh, the rather the, the desperate problems with universal credit is that there were no pilot projects before it was legislated, because there couldn't be. You, you either legislate it or you don't. And once you have, you can then say, well, now we'll hold the pilot projects. Well, actually, no, you're not. You're just seeing if you can make this thing work. You've already, already legislated. So um, I'm afraid that this is... I mean, we, we all, we've all rather hit a brick wall over this.
Um, and none of us really know where to go. And if anybody's got any bright ideas, <laughs> then Kitty, they're well, very willing to receive them. <laughs> yes. How would you do it? Every time, everything we look at, you can't do it. Well, the other interesting thing about the Finnish project is that the um, the figure that's been around in the press is the 580 euros uh, <coughs> amount. Uh, but that is the lowest level that you can get in Finland. So they have quite a generous benefit system. So if you are on the absolute lowest possible level of state support that exists, that's what you would get. So then that's the unemployed benefit if you don't have any contributions or uh, and you've basically not engaged with the system at all. That's the very, very minimum. So um, to British ears, that sounds quite generous. But to Finland, that's actually, I think, uh, there's a bit stingy, actually. In there. <laughs> if you were Finnish, you, you might think it was stingy. Um, so... Uh, Who's up? Oh, hello, someone at the back there, and then we'll come forward again. Um, my question relates to the minimum wage. So, under uh, citizen, citizen's income, what would happen to the minimum wage, and could you technically reduce it, making the UK more competitive globally? So, that fits with the sort of theme that citizen's income can be a response to a fractured labour market, and a, a very, or as if you're on the right, you'd say, uh, joyously flexible labour market uh, and uh, uh, that attracts uh, talent from the world. So yeah, so, that, so that's, uh, that's an interesting point, right? What do you do with minimum wage? So with tax credits, there's, they sort of tend to go hand in hand. There's but. no competition between, there's no conflict of any kind between the national minimum wage and assistance income. You, it, they would work perfectly happily together and there's no reason why they shouldn't. Um, my own view is it would be wise to keep a national minimum wage if we implemented a citizen's income um, while we watched to see what happened to the employment market. Because um, one of, the, one of the, the things which this country does, usually does reasonably well, um, is, is to make changes and then see what happens before it makes another one. Now, uh, the DWP made a mistake over universal credit in this respect because they tried to make far too many changes at the same time and it hasn't worked and they shouldn't have done um, because they've been trying to not only change the, 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 the regulations of the benefits but the ways in which they are administered um, and the computer systems that they're trying to use. So they tried to change everything and it doesn't work, obviously. Um, uh, and my own view is we should keep the national minimum wage um, if it looks, once you've had a citizen's income for a while and you're then looking at a very, maybe at a different employment market, then you should reevaluate. Um, but I, I don't see a conflict between the two. I don't argue for a conflict between the two, I just think that there is leeway to reduce and making the UK I th can I say something? I think, I think it's a really interesting question. And I think one of the reasons, actually, that the minimum wage was introduced in 1999 was because the tax credit system was being introduced. And the worry that with a tax credit system is that you're, you can be essentially... Sub the state is subsidising low wages. It's making it possible for people to work for very low wages and, and companies can keep wages low. So the national minimum wage was a kind of an essential partner with the tax credit system if we were to make sure that, um, that wages weren't pushed down and that... Um, companies can, pay, can, uh, weren't um, effectively ex make, exploiting the government, in a sense, and, and uh, allowing them to have lower wages. Um, I th for, for your argument, it's almost the, it's the opposite, that actually we could 
by, I think um, the universal basic income will be exactly the same thing. So to me, we would need to keep the minimum wage because otherwise exactly that could happen, which I can see from your perspective, maybe that's a good thing and we can be more competitive. Um, but the risk is that the government ends up subsidising employers. And I think that's bad because of the cost to the government. And I also think it's bad because I think that people like getting wages and they prefer to get their income from wages rather than from a benefit. I agree with that. Um, but there is actually a difference between the kinds of subsidies that the meat-sensitive benefits and citizens' income um, uh, result in applying. And the difference is this. Um, a, a citizen's income is what you call a static subsidy. Uh, if you are receiving a citizen's income and your wages go down, then the citizen's income stays exactly the same. There is less ability on the part of employers to put wages down because they will meet resistance. If you have a, a means-tested benefit as an in-work benefit, like working tax credits or like the old family credit and family income supplement, that's a dynamic subsidy. It's very different from a static subsidy. A dynamic subsidy, um, if, your, if your wages are put down by the company you work for, the, the subsidy, the, your, your working tax credit go up. So there is less, uh, there is, there is less pressure on the employer to keep the wages up and there's more incentive on the employer to let them drop because they know that the gap will be largely filled by the working tax credits which will increase. And so the, the citizen's income would, would uh, provide a, a lower subsidy effect to the current MESESTI benefit system and that is one of the, major, one of the advantages. I mean, it, it, it is a significant advantage that it's, it's a static, not a dynamic subsidy. Had some at uh, the front. And Sorry. Oh, uh, to you. There was one person. Okay, quickly at the back, then we'll come to the front. Yeah. They're far away. Okay, quickly. Hi. Um, okay, so, I, yeah, Citizens Income, I remember this in the 80s, the New Economic Foundation and everything that I read about them. But shouldn't, uh, in terms of the work ethic, shouldn't we be thinking this is an opportunity to challenge the whole um, system around work and this whole thing that you're saying, instead of reinforcing our self-esteem around having a job and not having a job. Shouldn't we, this be an opportunity to break that down and challenge that and, and not collude with it? That's how I feel, instead of reinforcing it and instead of people's identity being all focused on a, having a particular job and not having a job equals you're a valuable person. Shouldn't it be about having a meaningful life and how we can develop a meaningful life and unpaid work being valued, carers, you know, women, invisible work that a lot of women do uh, particularly as well. That's what I see as an opportunity and I've what you were saying, Kitty, I don't agree that we have to keep reinvesting in our self-esteem around being around whether we earn a certain amount of wages. That This, to me, is a way of challenging all of that. And, yeah. Um, and, and just to add that I think look, we've all seen people who've worked for 30, 40 years in one job continuously and just through the system and then they retire and they go, oh my God, who am I? I'm, you know, I'm not a meaningful person anymore and everything. And then two years later, they've got this, they're like so many more things in the world that, that are there that they see instead of this tunnel vision that we're encouraged to have in, a, in a one job. And often think, how did I ever go to work and fit it in? Yeah, I th yeah, R really good point. And I agree. And I think actually that's one of, and we haven't really touched on that. I think that is one of the one of the stronger arguments for citizens' income is exactly it can allow people to, to volunteer to do things which are very productive and are com and contributing to their families, to their communities, uh, volunteering, 
being an artist or whatever it is that people uh, want to do, caring activities. Um, so I think, for, yeah, for me, that's kind of one of the more, more persuasive things. And, but, I, but I still think that, that that doesn't replace the need for people to have uh, options out there to have good quality jobs. And I think that um, I'm just thinking of very depressed regions where there are, no, there are no jobs. And I think that's a real problem. And I wouldn't want us to... I mean, as Malcolm said, this isn't the only solution. But I, I, I sort of worry about a kind of vision that says, well, we don't need to worry about jobs and the fact that they're all disappearing because we're just going to you know, give people some money and they can volunteer in their community centre. So there are some good things about that, but I, I just... Um, I think that work is very important too, and I do think... Um, many people want to want to work and want to be paid, and work can be a very positive thing. Yeah, but you're getting fifty pounds a, a week. I mean, it's not. Yeah, it's not. You're not getting very. It's it's it's. You're not really getting enough to live on unless no, we no, introduce a, no, no. a very different type no, of system, it, which I don't think we can. It, it, so. would, it would increase people's ability to choose what they do, what kind of employment structure they and their household put together, how people use their time, would become a bit more flexible. No, of course it wouldn't be the answer to everything. Um, but it, we, we, we are all different. Um, we all get our self-esteem, our, our, um, our bars, whatever it is, um, from a variety of different sources, be that working in our communities, working for our family, caring for people, um, being employed. Whatever. We have a range of ways in which we relate to the world, all of us. And uh, if at all possible, we need a tax and benefits system which enables <coughs> people to choose between those different ways of finding self-esteem, dignity, and so on. Um, I, my own view is that a citizen's income is the way to do that. And, um, it, because it just keeps on coming, and it both it both is both likely to improve the quality of jobs and to provide people with more freedoms to what they do with their time. If it can do both, that's a win-win, and I I, I don't see the present system doing that. Uh, I've been looking at the Compass uh, report today, and there's one decision there that um, surprises. Uh, me somewhat, if I've understood it correctly, um, it's scheme three of the full, what they call UBI scheme, which um, would abolish all means-tested benefits with, except for housing benefit and council tax benefit, um, and would also abolish all tax allowances. Now, on the basis of that, so much of the financing would come through the abolition of tax allowances as they are at the moment, so that's using the Landman economic model rather than the Euro one, um, they estimate that actually there would be a net saving <laughs> to the Treasury in implementing that scheme of £53 billion. Pounds. Now, they reject it, I think, largely because... Um, people in the lower income deciles, a significant portion lose, of them lose of would money. lose a lot. But it seems to me if you've got £53 billion pounds, um, actually, you know, as a net gain, surely you can do something to counterbalance that in those, you know, low income deciles. I know, obviously, that would make it that little bit messier well, again, but perhaps is. could be done. And also perhaps do some of the things that you would like to see too, Kitty. The, <laughs> the answer is it can't be done, and they have rejected it, and quite rightly so. 
The reason it can't be done is because if you're going to say we must provide some kind of transitional arrangements for that group of people, then you are inventing a new means-tested system. Um, this is the only way you can do that. And so uh, our, our some of the benefits are um, then some, some of the you know, child, if you child up. Uh, if you're going to do it through universalism and not yes. through means testing, yes. you just can't put them up high enough to compensate the families who currently have very high levels of benefits. That's the problem. You just can't do it. That money wouldn't go far enough. If you think, if you think about a family, you know, like the, parent, the family that I talked about, a lone parent working part-time, they're getting you know, thousands and thousands, thousands of pounds a year, maybe £6,000 a year. So in order to give that to every single family it would cost you a lot, lot more than this. Which is why they say, in a sense they're doing what you suggest, because then they say, well, well, how about a modified version? So we'll have yes. this, but we'll use that money to keep some of the means-tested benefits. So I think that is the... I think you, so, you have to have some form of means-testing, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. And the best way to move away from that, I think, is universal child benefit, higher wages. Um, a few jobs, years ago, about jobs. four years ago, we ran our own research project on trying to do that. That is, are there, are there illustrative schemes out there that um, would enable oh, us to take people off being tested benefits at the same time as the scheme being affordable? And, and we had a very good um, master's degree student from um, Aberdeen came and spent six weeks with us and we did our own research project on this. We published it, all, it's all out there in our newsletter. Um, and we just had to say, no, you can't do it. There, there is no scheme out there that would enable us to do that. And the only way, and so it was at that point that the Citizens Income Trust um, uh, agreed to, to, that, that it would take a two-track approach in, in terms of our illustrative schemes. And, and both continue to say, well, maybe we can at some point um, abolish means tested benefits. And, and so scheme A is still out there, but we will also research the option of keeping the current structure in place and then reducing people's means-tested benefits because they are now receiving their citizens' income. And um, the, the conclusion which, which this research project comes to is actually that's the only way. Um, it's the, it's the, for a variety of different feasibility tests, it's the only way to do it. And, so although we'll probably carry on putting out illustrative schemes that do abolish means-tested benefits because people want us to do that, um, uh, the, the, the big kind of serious research stuff is going to be about schemes that, that keep means-tested benefits in place and reduce them. Thank you, so I think I've enough time for about three questions. Um, hi. Um, one of my questions was on, it was briefly mentioned that citizens' income would not decrease people's incentive to go out and look for work. Um, I was just wondering if the reasons why that would be the case could be expanded on. Yeah, do that. Um, uh, what I can tell you is the evidence. Now, the evidence is slightly complex because the experiments in the United States and Canada were not strictly citizens' income experiments. So you have to keep that in mind. They were negative income tax experiments, which are differently administered from citizens' income um, and have therefore have certain different effects, but the net income effects are the same. So it's a different way of administering a smooth, a smooth relationship between increasing um, earned income and increasing net income. So 
So you, expect the, you would expect the economic um, effects to be the same as for a citizen's income, though there, there might be differences that you, because of, and, and another of the differences is that, that the experiments were based on, on households and not individuals. So there were, were differences, so you need to keep that in mind. However, um, the experiments showed some very interesting results. First of all, there wasn't, in general, there was a very small reduction in work effort. Um, and, but it was, it was restricted to particular groups of people. Um, then the three, the three groups, and, then, and neither of these were big effects, but they were effects. One was people who were between jobs. It took longer to find the next job because they had this, this better financial foundation to, to rely on. Now that might actually be a good thing because it looked as if they were looking for the right job, not just any old job. And so if we can, oh, that's, that's not a bad thing. Secondly, it was um, mothers reducing their hours of employment when they had children. It wasn't that they, they disappeared from the employment market, they didn't, but they tended to reduce their working hours because they, they had this financial floor that they could then build on and they knew it was coming. Um, another group was young adults who were, were more often, though not to any great extent, more often choosing to go into higher education than straight into employment. So you had these three groups of people who were slightly reducing their work ethic, work effort, um, and nobody else was. And so what, and I, I think there was really positive results, actually. I think mean, there's a lot to be said for, for those experiments. And we're really fortunate that, um, well, first we were unfortunate that when the experiments first took place, particularly the ones in Dauphin, in, in Canada, um, they, they ran out of money and they just put all the results away in the boxes. And a, an Evelyn Forger, an academic in Canada, decided fairly recently this wasn't good enough. And so, and so did her own research project and opened all the boxes and took it all out <coughs> and, and evaluated the results. And, and that's what she found, that this is what had actually occurred. Um, and there were, there, were, there were lower hospital admissions, there were various other little effects, rather like the ones that you saw in Namibia. So there are actually connections between pilot project in Namibia and some of the results that were then discovered. And one of the really interesting results of that recent re-evaluation of the project is that the, the Canadian equivalent of our, our BMA, the, the British Medical Association, the Canadian <coughs> equivalent, um, are, now, are now behind a citizen's income because they saw the health benefits of it and so they, they're running their own campaign. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that's 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 what the results were as far as. So this has been an excellent uh, event, so thanks very much for the mix of the vision and the realism, which I, I particularly like. And I also like the focus on an incremental approach rather than trying to go to something which is very costly, but getting part of the way there. So I like the focus on the Scheme B, which, though it doesn't get rid of all the uh, conditionality, uh, keeps lots of other things in place and it only addresses the needs of a part of the population, it seems like it's going to take us some step of the way there. But I noticed that even in Scheme B, there is the 3% addition in income tax rates. And you may say, well, that's much less than in Scheme C, for example, when it's 28%. But 3% is still going to be a lot for lots of people. And I'll be really convinced that people are going to say, yeah, they're prepared to give up the 3% for this benefit for the country as a whole. And that leads me to my real question, which is, 
well, what do you think is actually credible and feasible in the next five years? You know, you, I mean, Malcolm, you've been in this area for 20 years plus. And what do you think is actually a credible accomplishment towards uh, uh, achievement of some of this vision in the next five years? What's going to be different? Will there be some of these uh, pilots in Utrecht and Finland have been taking place and we'll be able to look at them? Will we have some of these steps in place? Uh, and what do you, what do you, and, and I'm also particularly interested in Kitty, what do you think is a credible step forward? I mean, I know you don't believe in the entire the same scheme, but you've got some of the same vision. So what do you think is feasible? Uh, do you want me to answer first? Yeah, I'll have a go. Yeah, Kitty yeah, first. first, okay. Um, if I'm, I'm afraid I'm a bit depressed about what's going to be politically feasible. I mean, I, I suppose the, the loss of child benefit as a universal payment I thought was a terrible blow and the fact that it was that just went through the fact that, that is no longer universal that was the closest thing we had to this um, and that people seem to think people seem to ba basically support that and think yeah richer families if someone's got to pay the burden let's take this away from richer families and there wasn't a strong enough voice making the case for why this was important so I would hope um, that child benefit could be restored as a universal benefit but I'm not even that optimistic about that because I think the way things are at the moment, the poorest people in this society have been hit so hard by benefit cuts um, over these last six years that, I'm, I mean, even me, who really is a fervent believer in universal child benefit, if I was putting 3% on income tax, I can't honestly say that universal child benefit would be my top priority rather than restoring some of the more means-tested benefits such as child tax credit and rather than investing in the NHS um, which I think is really in a worrying situation. Um, replacing children's centres um, and investing in mental health services. I think, you know, if I was going to spend that money, that's probably what I would do. And I would think that all of those things probably have more political traction in terms of what could be done. So I don't, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't see a very positive future in the next five years, perhaps in the longer term. No. Yeah, um, one thing I must say about child benefit um, is that actually we do still have a universal child benefit. Now, when the, when the Chancellor in 2000, the 2010 Conservative Party conference told us that they were going to means test child benefit for the higher earners, I knew they couldn't do it. And anybody else who knew the system knew they couldn't do it because there is no database that connects high that connects people who are paying the higher rate of income tax with child benefit recipients. And if you were going to create such a database, you were going to be examining the intimate relationships between some of the wealthier people in this country, which would have been somewhat unpopular, because we only do that to the poor. Um, so, so we knew they couldn't do it, and, and it was a ridiculous thing for the Chancellor to say. And we're quite sure that it was put together over a cup of tea between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor. We can do this. Why don't we say it? We'll announce it at the conference. Then our civil servants can sort it out. Because, of course, the civil servants were then told to sort it out. And the only thing they could do was add an additional tax charge to people who declared themselves to be in households that were in receipt of child benefit. So we are in the bizarre position in this country now, and it really is bizarre. People don't realise how bizarre it is. That we have a universal child benefit still and a tax on children. And it is, you know, how, how did we get there? Isn't it mad? Um, but anyway, that, that aside. Um, the, one of the, the interesting things that came out of the research project that results in, in this book, Feasibility for Citizens' Income, 
is that having gone through a series of feasibility tests and looked for the evidence about what might happen and whether they could be met or not and so on, um, uh, the last chapter um, just has to admit that, that a great deal of what happens in social policy terms is simply accidental. Um, a combination of circumstances. Somebody knew somebody. And the beginning of family allowances, and, and which became child benefit, it's, it's a trail of policy accidents that happened. And you wouldn't have been able to predict, even a year before, that that's what would happen. And, um, and so, whilst, whilst I, I think one does need to do this kind of careful um, feasibility test stuff, and the, the research all needs to be out there, and we need even more of it than we've got, we just have to recognise that what's going to happen in terms of social policy is quite often simply an accident. Um, somebody spoke to somebody else, and then that happened, and then that. Um, in answer to your question, I haven't the faintest idea. <laughs> That's a good name. One last question, and then we'll have to wrap up. Hello. Um, I was going to ask a question about the minimum wage. When the minimum wage was first mooted back in the late 90s by the Labour government, um, there was a lot of opposition from the right of politics. Um, and the argument was, well, having a minimum wage is okay, but it's the level at which it's set. Now, my experience of over the past 15, 16 years of the minimum wage is that it has actually suppressed wages. It's not actually helped um, uh, increase people's wages. The, the minimum wage has become a maximum wage for many, many people. Um, my fear is that bringing in a citizen's income will have a very similar effect in the long term. So do you, do, what I'm worried about is this kind of highfalutin um, idea of a, a citizen's income. Um, my, my worry is that what are the pitfalls of it to the medium and long term? What, what is going to happen? What are the negatives? Because at the moment, you, I mean, you, you're not saying it's, it's the, uh, the panacea to everything and there will be negatives, but I've not heard many negatives so far from, from your... Well, it's not that there will be negatives, in my view. It, there are problems it would not solve. Of course there are problems it would not solve. Um, I'm not aware of any negatives in relation to the idea of a citizen's income. Um, and if you, if, you have, if you read money for everyone, um, it, it, it argues around a variety of questions and it, it also responds to people's objections to the idea. Um, uh, but the, uh, but the, the, the overwhelming verdict is it is a desirable policy and then you have to ask about its feasibility. Now, if I might just put something slightly right about the national minimum wage. Um, the CBI was actually for it and the reason the CBI was for it is because the more responsible companies were sick to death of the cowboys pinching their staff, who, which they had trained. Um, and uh, and so, so they, they really wanted the, 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 the whole, they wanted a floor under everything, which, which wages couldn't go below. They wanted, um, they wanted to be able to, um, to get rid of the cowboys, they wanted to be able to get rid of their, from their industries of people who were paying too little, stealing their staff, um, and they wanted more responsible employers in there. And so they were as keen as anyone else. It was originally the trades unions who objected, not CBI. 
um, trades unions were initially um, uh, very, very anti-national minimum wage because their view was that it was their job to negotiate over wages. It wasn't the government's job to get in involved and because they could see their power um, drifting away from them if there was a national minimum wage. Now, it is true that national minimum wage has not risen the way it ought to have done, um, which is why we've had the living wage campaign um, and why uh, George Osborne was then able to get on the bandwagon and call his idea a national living wage when it really isn't. So, I mean, it, politics is complicated. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I can perfectly see Sorry. that a citizen's income could be misused and abused, like, any, like anything can. That doesn't mean it's not a good idea. I just think that the right came on board when they realised, oh, this is a great idea to keep wage That's why I think this happened, and that's why the right has moved towards it. It's, it's great. Yeah, I suppose I just, um, I, I mean, to me, I think the risk and the cost is that you max out your tax raising capacity and use, use it on something which isn't really going to change all that much. I think that's my concern. So we are a nation who is reluctant to pay taxes and, and pushing taxes up is very, very unpopular. So the, the sorts of tax rates that are proposed in Malcolm's scheme and, and in the this uh, the other scheme here the compass scheme you know maybe pushing the bounds of political feasibility anyway but if we were going to do that i would think that, that right we've done income you know, it's very difficult to raise income tax for anything else so we would then be pushed on to there's other sources of revenue vat very regressive and so on but so that would be my concern if you're you can't people aren't prepared to pay very very high rates of tax in which case we need to use the tax that we've got on other things as well that's end on. So at that point, uh, can we have uh, some applause for Malcolm Torrey and Kitty Stewart? Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. That's really fascinating questions. Thank you.